Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. I am thrilled to announce that I have launched a new Patreon level for those interested in accessing even more unique bonus content. My original level, called Page Turners, still includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as monthly bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My new level is entitled Lit Lovers and includes all of the Page Turners benefits, as well as access to my new Traveling Galley program, where patrons have early access to at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members. A monthly fiction-nonfiction pairing episode a monthly episode containing bonus, spoiler-filled interviews with three authors, and finally, read-alike requests via email. Lit lovers can send me a book they loved, and I will respond with similar titles. This was such a popular and time-consuming add-on for me that I am moving it off of my main show. My true love is author conversations, and I want to be able to keep that focus on the show. Today, I am chatting with Bruce Borges about the bitter past. Bruce lives and writes from the Nevada desert, where he works hard every day to prove his high school guidance counselor had good instincts when he said you'll never be an astronaut. He has a lifelong obsession with words and stories and a fascination with how telephones work. When not writing, you can usually find him at the local wine store. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Welcome, Bruce. How are you today? Well, I'm terrific. How are you, Cindy? I am terrific as well, and I absolutely love The Bitter Past, so I'm so excited that you're here to chat with me about it. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I love your podcast and uh, really appreciate your interest in my book. Excited to speak to you about it. I'm excited to speak with you about it. And we can't talk about the ending because it's spoiler-free here, but I will tell you, that ending... So this will encourage everybody to pick up your book because I was already loving the book. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, my gosh. So very, very well done. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. That's good to know. Well, let's start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of The Bitter Past for those that haven't read it yet. Sure. I've always loved what if novels, stories that take us back to times and events in the past and pose a new spin on those events or ask, what if this happened instead? And I love dual timeline stories. The Bitter Past is about a modern day sheriff who is faced with solving a brutal murder 
of a retired FBI agent in his county, which happens to be right next door to the place in the Nevada desert where, starting in the 1950s, we used to test all the atomic bombs. Having a military intelligence background and generally just being a very astute individual, the course of his investigation leads him back to the hunt for a Russian spy six decades earlier. That's where the what if comes into play. We all know and have heard about the spies that handed over nuclear secrets to the Soviets during that time. Klaus Fuchs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, very famous cases. There are lots of them. The Manhattan Project was compromised. Our most secret laboratory in New Mexico had spies working in it. What I always think is, what about the spies we didn't know about? What about the ones that got away? What if a Soviet spy had managed to infiltrate the Nevada test site? And what if he was in a position to do something truly horrible? So Sheriff Beck is looking both for a present-day killer and for a possible KGB agent who, if he is real and is still alive, would be approaching 90 years old. And Beck isn't the only one looking for this guy. So that's kind of a quick synopsis without giving too much away. Well, I just thought it was such an enjoyable story. It was really different than most anything else I had read, which I always love. I mean, I look for that. And I'm thrilled that it's the start of a series. So that's correct, right? You're writing more Porterbeck? Yes. So Porterbeck number two, whatever that title turns out to be, should be released sometime next year in 2024. That's wonderful news. I'm already eagerly anticipating that. Great. So you talked a little bit about the story. How did you come up with the specifics? It sounds like you had the ideas percolating, but how did you decide to put all of this into the book? Yeah, it's a great question. So I grew up in Las Vegas for the most part, which is about 70 miles south of what used to be called the Nevada Test Site and which is now the Nevada National Security Site. And while this was after the government had moved all of the nuclear testing underground, the history of what went on there for decades always intrigued me. Those of us who live in the Southwest have heard the stories of how those above-ground tests sent huge clouds of radiation toward Utah for the most part, and how people and livestock were exposed. The downwinders is, is the name that we, we've given to that group of people, and that moved me as well. I have relatives who worked out at the site, friends who can recount, if you believe this, how their father would drive them out into the desert where they would stand on sand dunes and wait for the blast wave to knock them over. They thought that was fun. <laughs> Hindsight, you know. Yeah. And you, you think about the time in our history, not that long ago when people were digging fallout shelters in their backyards and kids in school were participating in what they called duck and cover drills and hiding under their desks as if that was actually going to help them survive a nuclear attack. I mean, the, the whole era was absolutely bananas. Think about it now. But to the people back then, it was very serious. So I wanted to write about the time, but I didn't want to write just a historic account. There's a plethora of nonfiction books on the subject. I wanted to propose something new, something that could have happened, and something that would tie that time to the era we live in now. And that's kind of how I came up with Porter Beck and the murder mystery. Well, and there's such a strong sense of place, which I think ties into what you just said, that you were really wanting to bring that era and that time period and that place alive. 
but I'm always also drawn to stories that have very strong senses of place. I felt that I was there in Nevada, in the desert, and I, I just love that. You did a wonderful job of bringing it truly to life. Well, I appreciate that, and that's great feedback. And quite honestly, that was somewhat easier for me to do than it is for a lot of authors who are writing about faraway places. And I myself have done that. But in this particular case, where, where the story primarily takes place is in the county just north of where I live. So it was easy for me to go up there to meet some people, talk to some people, interview some folks, and really get a physical sense of the place. I took a lot of photos. My wife's a photographer, so we went up there and, and just kind of tooled around for a while in addition to talking to people and really got a great sense of the place. And then for the test site itself, which still exists, is, is still a very secretive place. And so I, I had to rely on people that I knew who had worked out there, people that had participated in interviews about their time at the test site during that time, the 1950s primarily, uh, who could give me, again, a, a, a real good physical sense of the area. But again, I've lived in this, in this area of Southern Nevada for most of my life. So I have a really good sense of physicality of the geography. And I think that helped. Absolutely. You could tell that it was very familiar to you. And I was so curious about the test site because I wondered how you had such intimate details because I was assuming that there's no way they're letting people just tour through all of that. I wondered how you found out those details. And I was going to ask you about your research. Yeah, it was, you know, like any any book, any anybody who's trying to write a novel, especially, or even nonfiction, there's a lot of research that's involved. And that took up a good number of months for me before I even started writing anything. I, I received a lot of great help from the National Atomic Testing Museum and their wonderful staff here in Las Vegas. And this place, if, if you or your listeners have never been there, is a great place to visit if you're in Las Vegas. They've got tons of materials. It's a great museum to begin with, uh, specific to atomic testing. Um, so they were a great help to me. They gave me access to their reading room, to their archive documents. So I was able to get a lot of information about what went on at the test site strictly from, from the museum and then from listening to recorded interviews that the university here had done with people who had worked out there back in the 50s. And I was able to get a good picture in my head of how things looked out there and how the site was set up, what the security was like. All of the things I described in my book really came out of that research. And of course, I read a lot of books as well that have been done on the subject. Was it just wild to be able to listen to those recordings? I always find it kind of gives me chills when I'm able to go back in time and listen to the actual people from another era describing whatever it is that I'm listening to. Those first-person narratives had to be fascinating. They really were, and I was very lucky to kind of stumble onto them because there are not a lot of people, as you can imagine, who worked out there in the 1950s who are still alive. Um, there are some, but they are, you know, there we're getting fewer and fewer of them every year. So it was great to have recordings to listen to their recounting of what it was like out there in the 1950s. And you have to remember at the time, 
uh, Las Vegas was a very, very small town, nothing like it is today. I think, I think at the time that I describe in the book, it was somewhere between 35 and 50,000 people in Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas area. And anything north of this, there, there was nothing until you got to Reno, which is 450 miles away. And of course, the test site is in between, but the test site was just being developed. So it was miles and miles and miles of open land, which was all hemmed in by military fencing and security people. And again, you know, it was it was picked because it was deemed to be by the government to be perhaps the one place in the continental United States where we could test these bombs without much fear of of anybody being out there to see what was going on. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Not only be out there to see what was going on, but also be exposed. And I know that was a lower thing on their list than the people knowing what was going on. But also, you're you're not in a big urban area or near large urban areas where you're going to be exposing a ton of people or a ton of animals. Yeah, that's correct. But, you know, it's 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 really I, I found this fascinating about my research. And and again, I had I had read a lot of books on the subject while I was doing the research and specifically on those people who lived downwind of these atomic blasts which during the 1950s were all done above ground. And those clouds of poisonous radiation drifted eastward, again, for the most part, toward the state of Utah. But we didn't know a lot, quite honestly, about what the effects of that radiation would be on people or livestock uh, at the time. We were gathering data. As a government, as you might imagine, we would. But there were there was not a lot of conclusive data to say whether or not this was harmful or not. There was a lot of anecdotal information quite early on as these blasts started to happen and people were exposed and their livestock was exposed. But, you know, anecdotal information has to filter up through all the levels of government. And, and during that time, again, you keep this kind of in the context of what was happening during the time. We were in a race against the Soviet Union to essentially produce, develop, uh, and potentially use the most advanced nuclear weapons that we could come up with. Um, so it was a, and, 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 and the political tension at the time was very high, the height of the Cold War a little bit before the Cuban Missile Crisis, but still a very tense time. And even the people who lived out here generally, you know, happily participated in this. For them, it was like, hey, we maybe there's a little bit of danger, but this is this is a race and we've got to win it. True. No, and I agree with that completely. But I just think they probably were trying to get as remote as they could. And that was probably a good location for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the place that they picked to, to do these detonations and to do this testing, you know, Nevada is a huge state geographically. I want to say we're the seventh largest state by area in the country. And there even today is, you know, miles of open land. I mean, hundreds of miles of open land in, in most directions. So it was very remote. Well, did anybody inspire Porter Beck's character? 
You know, not particularly, not specifically. I did go up and spend some time with the real sheriff of Lincoln County, a man by the name of Kerry Lee, who just recently retired, and he was very helpful to me and very happy to uh, to lend his expertise specifically about, you know, and I, I mention these things in the book uh, about how difficult it is to run a police department in an area that is the size of the state of Maryland, but it has a uh, police force of a, you know, the size of a Boy Scout troop. Um, so they have to cover all that land and they have, they generally don't have any kind of a backup. They do have a much smaller population. There's today, there's only about 6,000 people who live in this huge area the size of Maryland, but it has its own challenges in policing that area, especially when it's right next door to Area 51, you know, where we keep all the aliens and all of their <laughs> spacecraft and all that good stuff. Um, and you always have people who are very interested in trying to get over there. They have very unique challenges. So while I didn't have a specific person who inspired me for Porter Beck, I had a general outline and I kind of knew what I was looking for. Well, and you do talk about that in the book, about the terms of response times. And if something happens, you know, often it can be an hour, more than an hour away that they're having to cover to get to whatever the crime was. Sort of mind boggling for somebody that lives in the middle of an urban area. Oh, yeah, absolutely nothing like living in an urban area where you're, you know, you think if the police take longer than two minutes to get to your house, it's a long time. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, in in Lincoln County, Nevada, uh, you could spend a long time waiting uh, for help. And if you're one of the few police officers that they have or in the sheriff's department there, you are for the most part, on your own. And and as the sheriff told me, the nearest backup you have is in your vehicle. And that's the extra shotgun or the AR-15 or the other uh, weapons that they give you to carry around. So it's definitely challenging. Definitely daunting. I agree with that. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing The Bitter Past? I think what surprised me the most was I was, again, in my research, taken aback by how many people were actually affected or actually exposed to the radiation that all of this testing occurred. Now, as, as you know very well, Cindy, from talking to your other guests, when you research a novel like this, you, you have a tendency as an author to want to put everything in the book that you've researched because you think all of those details are really, really exciting and very interesting. And they are. But you leave a great deal of it out of the book. You, you use it, you use that research to help you tell the story, but hopefully you don't cram everything in that you learned about. And then again, what I learned about that really struck me was that radiation that we created in the 1950s from those hundreds of tests, that radiation drifted not just to eastern Nevada and Utah, but the entire Southwest and over time, the entire world. Now, there is no good data, I will tell you, that says how many people in different places in the country or elsewhere ended up having bad health effects from the exposure to that radiation, because there are all sorts of other reasons why people can get sick. But there are lots of 
folks in specific areas of the country who have had major cancer clusters, especially things like thyroid cancer, other types of cancer that they believe are attributable to those tests. Now, that's probably never going to be resolved, but the government to this day is still compensating people who qualify as downwinders or people who worked out at the Nevada test site during that time. Okay, that's interesting. I did not realize that. And it makes perfect sense, especially, well, both really, the people who worked there and the downwinders. But it makes me think about all of these recent Canadian wildfires and how the smoke and the smog and everything that's associated with those fires made its way pretty far down in the United States. And I think we know so much more now about how these things can travel. So things like the byproducts, I guess, of these tests could have gone all over the place, as you're saying. And, and I think we understand that much better today than they did then. Yeah, I think that the people running the tests certainly did their level best to ensure that the wind at the time of the blast was not going to drift, again, to the best of their ability. To The, the wind wasn't going to drift to heavily populated areas. And it, if they thought it was, they simply canceled the test or postponed it. But Wind is the wind. And as you can see, like you said, by the Canadian wildfires, you, you, and that, that again is the smoke you can physically see. Now, you, you could have seen this, this cloud of, of dirt, which was infused with radiation at the time, but that quickly dissipated. And the wind simply carried those invisible particles everywhere else, which we simply didn't know about. But I, I have spoken to people. I have relatives who, might have been driving through southern Utah after a blast. And this would have been, you know, some 70 to 100 miles away from a blast. So some hours or a day later or whatever. And the government was out there stopping cars and giving people and, and running, you know, radiation detectors over their vehicles and giving people tickets for free car washes and things like that. I've spoken to people who who lived in uh, southern Utah, who, like the day after a blast, would go outside. These are children at the time. And again, we didn't know what we didn't know about radiation. And we had very little information. But they would go outside, and the dust was so thick that they would, like, write their names in on the, the windshield of the car with their finger. That's how much that radiation drifted. Doesn't that just sound like the twilight zone now? I mean, you just can't even fathom that happening and allowing your child to go do that. I know they didn't know, so there was no way around it. But I mean, you hear that and it just gives you the chills and just almost makes you sick to your stomach. It, it really does. And I, again, I think those, the folks who lived downwind, I mean, immediately downwind, the people that we really know about who were heavily exposed, they were troopers. You know, they, they were patriots. And at the time, again, if you keep this all in context of the time, they wanted to do their part. And again, the government was certainly downplaying, uh, however it could, any possible danger from the exposure to this radiation. But those people probably would, would have gone along for the ride anyway. Now, later on, after several years of this, when there started to be reports of you know, a lot of miscarriages in certain areas or a lot of livestock deaths or, as I describe in the book, um, some very bad outcomes, both with animals and people. Those people started to 
to question what was going on and not necessarily believe what the government was telling them. And that's certainly understandable because there's only so much of the company line you can take before you go, but look at this. Look at my entire herd of sheep um, or my cattle or my people that I know who have who are suddenly getting cancer. That eventually did happen, but they were they were patriots, as I said. Well, and that's exactly what I was gonna say. I do think that if you look at the time period, you understand the Cold War, how scared everybody was about Russia. It was this, you know, push to make sure we were dominant. And I get that. But I do think that over time, if you think you're not being told the truth, it's going to eventually wear off a little bit. Like, I'm happy to do my part, but like everybody needs to be upfront about what doing my part means. So I, I do think that it played out like it plays out many times with different things. But it's just sad to look back and think about it. I My dad grew up working in a shoe store. His parents owned all these shoe stores. And they would use those radiation machines to measure their feet. You think again now, like, who would do that? And so many people (laughs) ended up with cancer. But it's the same thing. Like at the time, it seemed like this great idea. Here's a way to measure our feet. Put your feet in this radiation machine and that'll tell us your shoe size. And everybody's trying their best initially. And then sometimes there's just terrible side effects. Yeah, you're right. And it is entirely the same kind of thing. And, And there is a reason that we eventually moved all of those detonations underground. I mean, the government knew by the early 1960s, and and they were getting more and more protests about atomic testing. But um, they knew a lot more at that time, and they decided, well, just for everyone's safety, we should move this underground. And that's where it stayed for the remainder of, you know, the next few decades. No, for sure. Well, I'm always fascinated with titles and covers. So tell me a little bit about how the title came to be The Bitter Past, and then about your beautiful cover. This is a touchy subject. Well, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I'm not trying to open a can of worms or anything. It's not really touchy anymore, as you probably are aware, because I'm sure you've asked this question more than once. When you have a publisher, as I do, my publisher is, is Macmillan and their imprint, Minotaur Books, they have a whole staff of people who do this kind of thing for a living. And they're very, very good at it. And so... I'm not even sure I remember exactly. Well, actually, my initial title for the book was Project 57. It was just a working title, and it does come into play in the book, but I kind of used it as a placeholder. I wasn't married to it. Then um, when I started uh, really getting into the edits of the book and trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to call this thing? We came up with a list between my agent, myself, everyone at the at uh, Macmillan and, and St. Martin's Press and Minotaur Books, came up with a list of about 25 possible titles. And there were a few that I really, really liked. One of them was The Half-Life of Secrets. And I was just praying that we were going to go with that. And then one day, my uh, the executive editor called me and said, okay, we've got the title. It's The Bitter Past. And I, I just, to myself, I was like, okay, that sounds like every other book I've read. Um, but he said, just trust me on this. We're going to come up with a great cover for it that really brings out the title. And he said, let's face it, the story really is about the bitter past. It is, yeah. The more that I thought about that, the more that I said, you know what, that really is a great title. And to to their credit, they did come up with a great cover for it. 
The cover is stunning, and I love the way they've done both the title and the way they've done your name and the you and the ear behind the mountains. So it's just very, very well done. And I don't think The Bitter Past sounds like every other book. It's an easy title for me to remember, because sometimes when it's a bunch of words strung together, I have to be like, what? What is that title again? But this one has stuck with me since I first saw it, and I I think it's great. Well, and now you know why I didn't get to pick the title. (laughs) Well, I do think that's a difficult thing. And I know authors get very set on a title because it's your book. You want it to be what you want it to be. But I do think it turned out well, and hopefully you eventually will too. Oh, yeah. I think it really came out well. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, in the next few weeks, actually seeing the hardback edition and that kind of glossy shine of the cover. So uh, it's going to be exciting. It will be exciting. Well, before we wrap up, Bruce, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, my gosh. I read all the time, but I'll give you a a sense of um, just some of the more recent books that I read. I love historical fiction, as I said, and dual timeline stories. So I'm addicted to those kinds of books. I really recommend anything that Kelly Rimmer has written especially the things that we, things we cannot say, pretty sure that's the title, the things we cannot say, and the Warsaw Orphan. Um, There's uh, several other titles. They are fantastic dual timeline stories. Also, All the Broken Places by John Boyne, another great novel, and the follow-up to The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which a lot of people will be familiar with. And I just finished uh, this last weekend, a book called Beyond That, The Sea by Laura Spence Ash, which is a beautiful story about friendship and love spanning multiple decades. I loved Beyond That, The Sea. I actually interviewed her. Really? And I just thought that, yes, I thought that story was so fantastic. I didn't even realize that people from London and the UK had come over to the US in early parts of the war. Like I was unfamiliar with that. So it was really interesting to learn all of that. That's one of my favorite things about historical fiction is learning things I didn't know before. And I thought that story was just very well done. Yeah. And Kelly Rimmer's books are very much like that. You learn so much about what happened during a time that is always ever present in our minds, you know, the whole World War II time period. And we know so much about it, but she she delves into things and, and lives uh, that were happening behind the scenes that I had no idea was going on. I don't think I've ever read any of her books. I may have read The German Wife. I don't know if that's her, but that's the only one of hers that I've read, which kind of a little bit reminds me of yours in terms of the idea that these people came over to the U.S. to help us again with the Cold War and, you know, went against things that maybe other Americans would have been uncomfortable with knowing these Nazis were living among us. Exactly right. Yeah. And there was a lot of that that happened, obviously. And that was that was kind of a touchy subject with a lot of people for a long time about who we brought over and how safe were they. And of course, we do know that some of those people ultimately decided to share information about some of our secret programs with other countries. Yes, it's definitely a risky proposition that they took to do that. Yeah, I I did like the German wife, but I was also so angry as I was reading it because I was like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was so interesting to talk with you, and I can't wait for the bitter past to make its way out into the world. Well, thanks so much for having me, Cindy. It's been a pleasure to, you know, uh, to take a few minutes and just talk to you about my book. And yeah, like you, I'm I'm looking forward to its release here uh, as well. And uh, 
really appreciate the time. Absolutely. And you enjoy all of that because that's an exciting time. I will. Thanks so much. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.